Good morning to you. Glad that you could join us this morning for worship. And uh, we're off topic than what we've been covering the last number of weeks, and we're going to be in a gospel this morning. And no matter how much you want to uh, escape it this weekend, this, the, the topic that really consumes our minds and hearts as Christians is, is the topic of death. And yet death is a topic that no one wants to talk about, really. If you want to shut down a conversation as fast as possible, just bring up death. Bring up dying, discuss the end of life, and things tend to get quiet quick. But everyone on earth is bound together by this one thing, death. Every person on earth has experienced a death most likely in their life, and if you live long enough on this planet, you will know someone who will die. It's the common denominator of every person. Every person on earth has, has this destiny in mind. It comes to their, to their thoughts and to their heart, usually on a, on a regular basis. And, and death was most definitely on the mind of Jesus this week that we, we celebrate and we think of. Thursday is the day when, when Jesus, if you remember, walked into the garden by himself. And in Mark chapter 14, 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, sit here while I pray. James, John, Peter are with him. Mark says, Jesus was greatly distressed and troubled, and he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch. The Greek understanding of, of that word translates deeply distressed as, as astonished. Jesus, at this point throughout the Gospels, was, was really unflappable. Now suddenly, he sees something. He, he feels something deep within his bones, and he realizes something, and it unsettles him. Mark says he's troubled, which means he's overcome with horror. What would bring horror to Jesus? See, something is happening in the garden that Thursday night. It was shaking the unshakable Son of God. I thought this week on, on Thursday, reflecting again on the fact that something horrific was crashing into the senses of our Lord while he prayed in the garden that Thursday. Something that moved him to the point of sweating drops of blood. Jesus prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but you will. If you remember, we've talked about this over the years, that the cup is this Hebrew understanding, is a metaphor for the wrath of God on human evil. That's what the cup signifies there. And so Jesus is trembling in the garden, knowing that he would die, and now he's seeing what that death would entail, the evil that he would take on himself. The sinless Son of God would absorb the full wrath of God, and he would die. He was thinking of death. Have you thought about death this week? We probably should think about death more often than we do. 
Because without his death, there is no life. Walter Wangren was quoted saying, if the gospel seems irrelevant to our daily lives, that is our fault, not the gospel's. For if death is not a daily reality, then Christ's triumph over death is neither daily nor real. Worship and proclamation and even faith itself take on a dreamlike, unreal air, and Jesus is reduced to something like a long-term insurance policy, filed and forgotten, whereas he can be our necessary ally, an immediate, continuing friend, the wholly destroyed of death and the devil, my own beautiful Savior." Friends, we celebrate Easter this morning because we believe that Jesus Christ was literally and physically resurrected from the dead. We believe it. We don't think it was a fairy tale. We don't think it's some sort of analogy. We believe Jesus Christ was physically and literally murdered, killed, strung up on a cross for the whole world to see and that his lifeless body was in the grave from Friday afternoon until Sunday morning. And on that Sunday morning, just like a morning like today, he was physically resurrected from the grave. We believe that. We stake our lives on that. We have embraced that. And we understand because of that belief, there are big implications of that. And that sets us at odds against the world. So Easter, Easter's the day that we should circle on our calendars because it's the day the world forever changed. Everything changed for every human that has ever roamed the earth on Easter. So this morning, if you're a regular attender, we're going to do something a little different. We're just going to walk through the passage. We're going to walk through the passage this morning. I don't have a main idea. I don't have an outline. We're just going to walk through this passage in Mark chapter 15. So if you haven't already, turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, Pastor Chris mentioned that earlier. There are some in the seats in front of you. We encourage you to get one. Um, I don't know what page it's on. I didn't look that earlier. But turn to Mark chapter 15. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you can open to the front few pages there. There's a, a listing of all the books Don't be ashamed of that. Mark chapter 15. And we're going to be at the end of the chapter, verse 46, and go into chapter 16 this morning, Lord willing. Mark 15, starting in verse 46. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Joseph here is Joseph of Arimathea, and he, is, he uses his tomb for Jesus' burial, and he believes Jesus is dead. He's convinced of it, along with Nicodemus, as John's gospel says. And they take Jesus' lifeless body, and they wrap it in linen, and they put it in the tomb. Jesus was dead on Friday. He couldn't do anything for himself. Someone, had, someone else had to, to ask for, for him to be taken down and, and, and to be buried before the sun went down before the Sabbath. Jesus dies in mid-afternoon, and the Sabbath began at sunset. And the Jewish law permitted no work on the Sabbath, which meant they, needed, they, they could not bury the body of Jesus when they wanted. 
And the way that, that Mark is writing the, the burial is significant because he's certifying that Jesus was really dead. In fact, there's a strange redundancy in Mark's account. Three times within a span of just eight lines, Mark records the names of some women who, who witnessed these events, who, who were a part of, of the crucifixion, who saw Jesus on the cross. And he says again in verse 47, Mary Magdalene, Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. And then in chapter 16, when, when Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary mother of James and Solomon brought spices. Now, it's, it's interesting, but it's notable. We'll come back to this. And why Mark, along with other gospel writers, mention these women. But think about this Sabbath, this Saturday. It's a remarkable Sabbath, a Sabbath of rest for our Lord, a Sabbath of silence. Matthew Henry writes about this. He says, never was there such a Sabbath since the Sabbath was first instituted as this was, which the first words of this chapter tell us was now past. During all the Sabbath, our Lord Jesus lay in the grave. It was to him a Sabbath of rest, a, a silent Sabbath. It was to his disciples a melancholy Sabbath spent in tears and fears. Never were the Sabbath services in the temple such an abomination to God, though they had been so often as they were now when the chief priest who presided in them held their hands full of blood, the blood of Christ." Can you imagine the Sabbath service the day after Jesus died? Not realizing what has happened. Not realizing what's going to happen in the next few hours. When we come to chapter 16, we come to verse 1, and, and, and Mary, and both Marys there, they brought spices. They brought spices. This was not an embalming of the body. You know, the perfume was there as an act of worship to, to cut down on the smell of a decaying corpse. So when we come to chapter 16, we come to verse 1, we come to, to Sunday morning, and, and, and they go to the tomb not because they believe in that moment that Jesus is alive. No, they go to the tomb with the spices, with, with the perfumes, because they're convinced that he's dead. In verse 2, and very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. It was early in the morning before the sun had come out. It was dark outside. When was the last time you were outside in, in the dark, early morning? Some of you night owls are like, yeah, never. But some of you early risers, when was the last time you were outside and experienced darkness before light? For some of you, you know, we lived in Sweden. Uh, when we lived in Sweden during the winter, I would take a child to school at 7 a.m. and it was pitch black. A mile and a half walk that we walked to the school it was never quiet on the way because I had an eight-year-old with me. But on the way home, in the darkness, it was quiet. And there's something about being outside, early morning darkness, where you do a lot of thinking in the dark. At least I did. When you're up early in the dark, you tend to think about the prior day, what happened, what you're feeling now about it all. 
It's like you haven't really fully processed the day before because it doesn't really feel like the day is actually completed, right? You kind of feel like you're still in that day because it's still dark because the new day hasn't come. The new new sunrise hasn't hasn't brought in this memory that now is a a new day. And so I I can imagine these women in that first dark morning after losing someone they desperately loved was a very contemplative morning. Darkness can be so disorienting to us. And in deep darkness, you can't see forward. You don't know where you're going. You have no direction. You can't see yourself in deep darkness. You don't even know what you look like. You can't tell if there's anyone around you, friend or foe. You feel very isolated. Physical darkness brings confusion and lostness, and it can overwhelm us, and it can exhaust us. Some of you have been in overwhelming and disorienting darkness the last year. Uneasiness and awkwardness and confusion fill your days. Friend, you're not alone. This is where these women were existing on that Sunday morning before the sun had come up. Because they were going to anoint the body of their teacher, their beloved friend, their loved one. Verse 3, and they were saying to one another as they were walking, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Why are they worried about the stone that, that morning? Simply, they're women, and they won't be able to roll it away. With the stone in the way, they won't be able to go into the tomb and anoint the body of Jesus. That's their mission this morning. That's why they've brought the spices. That's why they're up early, to come and anoint the body of Jesus. And, and where are the men on early Sunday morning? Do you know where they're at? John says they're hiding. The doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So the men are hiding for fear. And where are the women? Out, going to anoint the body of Jesus. The women head to the tomb and the men cower in the locked room. Just note that it was the woman who kept life going when things went south. When things were difficult and disorienting, the women were the ones who kept moving forward. And they're talking about the stone. They're, they're, not, they're not saying, hey, hey this, is, this is fantastic. Jesus is going to be there. We're going to hug him. We haven't seen him in two days. No, they're not thinking that. They're thinking the stone needs to be moved so we can anoint the body of Jesus. And they didn't expect the stone to be gone. And so verse 4, and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Mark's given us just details of the day, but I think they're significant. First, they looked up. I find that interesting. Why did they look up? Because their eyes were down. And what does it mean that their eyes were down? Grieving people usually don't look up. Usually their eyes are down. Because they're sorrowful, and they're mourning, and they're hurting. And their eyes aren't naturally cast up. It's cast down. 
And so when they get there, their eyes are down. They're not expecting anything to be different than what, what had happened from Friday, and they're shocked. They're shocked because the stone was rolled back. And this stone was huge, and it was guarded. See, they worried about something that was actually nothing. I mean, it was rational, but, but, but they worried about something that was actually nothing. And some of us this morning are distressed about something in your life that God has already dealt with. You haven't seen it yet or experienced it yet, but God has already, he's already dealt with that. You're consumed and worry about something when it's really nothing for God. How many of you woke up this morning and that issue that's been consuming your mind for days and weeks is, is just there? Soon after the alarm goes off, it's in your mind. And, and we begin to get consumed about this thing instead of, instead of reminding ourselves we need to trust in God. I don't ask you that so that you could beat yourself up. Don't, don't do that, friends. That's not what I'm saying. Just realize that these women are doing the same thing here, and, and God has grace for them. See, our something is, is not much in the hands of God. Our, our something that, that consumes our minds is really nothing when God is involved. In the greatness of our troubles, there's often more space for the greater display of the goodness of God. In that great trial in our life, friends, maybe nothing more than a prelude of great joy as God works and shows you how he's going to work. Well, these women come to see the tomb and they realize the stone is gone and, and it's moved and, and that's not what astonished them most, no. No. Now, verse 5, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. See, they understand now what, what's happening. He has risen, right? He has risen, church, and you say, yeah. Today is Resurrection Morning. It's Resurrection Sunday. And as Chris said, newsflash, next week is Resurrection Sunday. Because every week we gather, we remember this. And can you imagine the shocked faces of these women at this point? Right? It's just a, a domino effect of shocking things that, that continue to happen in this morning. And what must have been racing through their minds? They came early to Sunday morning to a tomb that was supposed to be sealed, they, they expected to devote time and resources to anoint a dead body, not just any body, but the body of their Lord, their friend, their leader, their teacher. They expected a corpse, and instead they hear, he has risen. He is not here. Now, they, they shouldn't have been completely surprised, right? Because repeatedly in the Gospels, repeatedly in Gospel of Mark, Jesus says to his disciples, I will rise in the third day. He said it in Mark 8. He said it in Mark 9. He said it again in Mark 10. Jesus is saying over and over and over to them, I will die, but I will rise again the third day. I will die, and I will rise again the third day. I will rise again in the third day. He was trying to help them understand what was about to happen. And yet, here's the third day, and where is John, Mark, Peter? 
They're nowhere to be found. No one expected a resurrection. The resurrection was inconceivable for the first disciples. It was impossible for them to believe. The Greeks denied any possibility of resurrection, and Jews only believed in a future general resurrection. So they had been consumed by this understanding and had forgotten or ignored Jesus' teaching. And it was only the women here that come to observe the empty tomb. Only the women. And, And this is interesting. I mentioned this earlier. See, Mark, along with the other gospel writers, inform us that it's women that come to the tomb. Now, we need to understand a little bit of the history here. If these writers are trying to write a story to be believed, you wouldn't say women are the ones coming to find the body. And I'll get to my point here. I don't want angry letters, okay? Celsus, a Greek philosopher who lived in the second century, was highly antagonistic to Christianity and wrote a number of works listing arguments against it, and one of his arguments was against women as a chief witness. So he wrote this, I'm quoting him. Christianity can't be true because written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women, and we all know that women are hysterical. You're going to have some lively conversation at Easter dinner, aren't you? Many of his readers agreed with him. See, it was a major problem. But you need to understand, at this time, what was happening, women were marginalized. They were ignored. They were used. They were sold as possessions. And their testimony wasn't given much credence. So why does Mark, along with the other gospel readers, share multiple times that women found the empty tomb? Have you thought about that? Maybe you haven't thought about it since last Easter. You know, so if, if Mark and these men first want to get this, these Christians, this movement going, you know, they're, they're, they're going to get it off to the ground, they would never have written that women in the story were the first witnesses of Jesus' empty tomb. They, they wouldn't have done that because it would have been ignored or, or cast aside as foolishness. So why does Mark and these women write, well, excuse me, why does Mark write that these women go to the empty tomb? Because it's true. I'm going to ignore that comment. <laughs> because it really happened. So they, they didn't go to the marketing department and say, how can we get this story out as quickly as possible so it's believable by others? They didn't come to it and say, we need to somehow manufacture faith in people to believe in Jesus. Somehow if I say the right words, if I write the right sentence, if I communicate it the right way, if I do this and if I do that, then people will believe in Jesus and who he is. They, they didn't do that because they recognized that they're not the ones that save. They're not the ones that bring faith. It is God that saves. And so they wrote the truth because it happened. Biblical scholar Richard Bachman says that this is another way for Mark and the other writers to let us know that they're writing a historical account and they're not writing a legend. The repeated names of the women here are sources of citation. 
And, and, and essentially, I said this before years prior, there are footnotes, friends. These women must have been alive at the time Mark was writing this, or he wouldn't have cited them repeatedly. And Mark is telling his readers, if you want to check the validity of what happened and the truth that I'm telling you, go talk to these women. Go ahead. They will tell you exactly what they saw, what they heard. They're still alive, and they can corroborate everything that I just wrote. Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. He writes in a way that people can go check these footnotes, these people that would get evidence and testimony that what we're saying is true. And friend, you might be here this morning because mom and dad asked you to come. It's Easter. You're going to have ham later, so they wanted you to come to church. Or it's just the thing that you do. It's just the, the, the Sunday that you check off. And friend, I am glad you're here. You're welcome every week we're here. And you may be a cynic and a doubter and a skeptic. Just know that you are surrounded by people here who once filled your shoes. And you're surrounded by people in your neighborhood who are skeptics too. The Bible is full of skeptics. But one thing is true with skeptics. You have that twinge inside of you wanting it to be true. You want this to be true because you're longing for peace. You need hope. You need endurance. And friend, Christianity promises to answer all of your questions. It loves to show you the answers. And everything, all of your questions about God, about Jesus, about life after this life, all of it hinges on this day, on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why all the gospel accounts talk about it. That's why further into the epistles, they point back to it. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 when he writes, Jesus was seen by Cephas, but seen by the 12. He was seen by 500 people at one time, most of whom are still alive. See, Paul is saying, hey, I, I know that you might doubt this to be true. Go check. Go, go through the list of witnesses. See, if you're writing a, a serious academic work today, especially a historical work, if you're producing that, you have to have footnotes you have to have some way that people can check your work to make sure it's accurate. And this is what Paul is doing. This is what the gospel writers are doing. They're, they're writing this and, and giving names and evidence and details. They're saying, go check, because it's true. And Paul is, Paul is writing his letter in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 years later after the resurrection at this point. And he mentions the 12. You guys remember the 12, right? Those men who walked with Jesus, who knew he was a Messiah. See, the resurrection for those 12 galvanized their faith. And they would never deny that Jesus was alive. No one breaks. No one changes their story. They crucify Peter upside down because he won't deny Jesus. James is stoned to death. See, every one of the 12 dies a brutal, horrific death. Even John, the Gospel of, of John 
church tradition tells us that the leaders were so angry at his ministry that they tried to boil him alive. And he lived. And it freaked him out, and they sent him onto an island. And through this, time and time and again, no one recants. Not one. And they continue to, to share the same story. And, and Mark writes, these women were here to prove the validity of what's transpired. No matter what culture thinks, no matter what others may think of women at this time, he writes the truth because it really happened. And the whole Bible pivots on this one day. In fact, all of history pivots on this morning. This moment right here in your Bible, this central moment changes the world. Right here where he preaches to the women, he has risen, he is not here, see the place where they have laid him. This moment, those words, it changes everything in this world. This is earth-shattering news. This news changed my life. The day I understood that Jesus was really who he said he was and he came back to life and that he died for me forever changed me. Has it changed you? Christianity is firmly and completely based on this morning with these women finding an empty tomb. Everything pivots at this moment. And what happens now changes their lives forever. In fact, millions and millions of lives are changed because of that morning, because of what happened there, of those women coming to an empty tomb. History hangs on these verses, verses 3 through 6. See, before we come to the tomb, their minds are, are, are still set that Jesus is dead. Sin still reigns supreme on the earth. Nothing had changed For them, Jesus was dead. This movement that he was a part of, that they were a part of, was over. And now they're going to be enemies of the state. Their their life was going to get worse and worse and worse from there. But in the moment when they come to the tomb and they see that he's gone, in those breaths of shock and astonishment, a whole new world dawned for them. And finally, hope. Hope had come. New expectations were there life was going to be much different. And not just the news that had changed them, but now they were given an assignment. Look at verse 7, chapter 16. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. What's their assignment? Go and tell. What do we do with the text this morning, friends? Go and tell. That's the job of the church. That's the job of Christians. We we come and learn on Sundays, and then we go and tell the rest of the week. And these women have an incredible job of going and telling the disciples that it's really true. Jesus is alive. All the bad stuff that, that has happened is coming undone. And Jesus is, is alive. He, now, he doesn't say, go and tell those cowardly, faithless, weak disciples who've locked themselves in that room. No, even the announcement is full of incredible grace and mercy. 
And he doesn't say, just go tell the disciples in general. No, did you catch that? In Mark's gospel, he specifically calls on them to find Peter. If we, we look at Mark's or at Luke's gospel, we see the response. Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, mother of James, and the other woman, told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them as an idle tale. They did not believe them, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb. And stooping in and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So why does Mark single out Peter, and why does Peter react this way as we just read in Luke? I believe that Peter felt like the biggest loser that Sunday morning. Peter meant well on Thursday, a few days earlier, when, when Judas brought the men to arrest Jesus. Do you remember the story? Peter, Peter is the one who stood up, right, to defend Jesus, and he cuts off the ear of the soldier. But in that act, it just shows that Peter didn't understand who Jesus was and why he had come. He didn't understand the, the power that Jesus held. See, Peter should have known about the kingdom of God. He heard it preached to him for years, but when push comes to shove, what does he rely on in that moment? He relies on the sword. And aren't we just like Peter sometimes? We say we're on the side of justice and peace and fairness, and when we, the challenge arises, we, we feel the need to unleash the sword. Maybe not literally, but maybe with our mouths. And we're going to get justice by any means necessary. See, Jesus says in the Gospels over and over to Peter and to the rest that my kingdom is not of this world. And yet, what does he do? What do we do? We unleash the sword. And Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not of this world. Don't you get it? I'm going to change how this world is going to work. I'm going to put others ahead of myself. I'm going to love my enemies, truly love them. I'm not going to repay evil for evil. I'm going to overcome evil with good. I'm going to give up my power, my life. Weakness, poverty, suffering, rejection will now be at the top of my list. My revolution comes without a sword, and it will change the world. But Peter wasn't a quick learner. And if we're honest with ourselves this morning, we're more like him than we'd like to admit. The Gospel of Luke says that when Jesus was arrested, Peter is following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an eternal interval of about an hour, still another insisted, Certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. It's now Sunday. 
and the tears are barely dried from Peter's face. And I'm sure all Peter can think about was that night. It's consuming his mind at every turn. Why didn't I tell them who I was? Why was I such a coward? What's wrong with me? Why do I continually screw up? And now Jesus is dead. He's gone. The moment when he needed me to stand up and be faithful, I failed. I was concerned about myself. And I'm selfish and a self-centered jerk. I failed. We can be a lot like Peter. When we feel the weight of our sins and allow them to burden and crush us. See, I think if the women had raced back to find the disciples and only talked to the group, I'm sure Peter would have reasoned in his mind that he wasn't included, that he failed. I'm no longer one of the 12. I messed up. I, I denied him, just, just like he said, he, he said I would, and, and I didn't want him. And so he wouldn't want me now. I mean, what good would I bring to the situation at this point? I had my opportunity. I couldn't do it. And yet the women follow the instructions, and they go tell his disciples and Peter. Praise the Lord for those two words. And Peter. He could come. Jesus wanted Peter to come. See, in those two words, we understand that anyone can come to Jesus. Any one of you, no matter what you've done in this life, Jesus invites you to come. And perhaps this morning you've come and you're listening and you believe. You've, you've preached this message to yourself over and over and over in your mind that God wouldn't want me. And you say, Jeff, you don't understand what I've done and how I've lived. And Jesus is saying this morning, you are invited. Everyone's invited, and so are you. And this is God's call for you to come. This resurrection morning is for you, my friend. Even you. Peter is the example. The example that... God's mercy is bigger than your prior rejection of him. His mercy is stronger than your sins and your denial and your dismissal. Jesus is calling you. Friends, if, if this story is all true, 
if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then this changes everything in life. If Jesus is God, if Jesus really did die on Friday and come back to life on Sunday, then everything in this world changes. Whether you understand it or not, everything in Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we don't have to worry about a thing he told us throughout his entire life because it would all be a lie. But if Jesus rose from the dead, then we have to accept everything he said because his authority is absolute. You can't come to this point and believe that Jesus rose from the dead and walk away the same. It's impossible. This is life-changing news. It's life-altering news. You are no longer going the same direction in your life. You have to live differently based upon the resurrection. See, Jesus shows us time and time again in the Gospels that he is nothing like those other religious leaders. He has authority over life and death. Some of you have perhaps fallen into the trap thinking, yeah, he does authority. And you think of Jesus' authority in some abstract way. He he conquered death. He has authority over life. He has authority over sin and Satan, and, and that's out there. It's a, it's a fact, sure, it's outside of us. And we think of, of it in an abstract way, never personally applying it to ourselves. But if you believe what the Bible says about Jesus, about his authority over death, over sin and Satan, then the unavoidable conclusion is he has authority over me. And there's no way to escape it. Jesus reigns supreme over everything. You and I don't get a pass. Jesus has authority over everything, over your life, your relationships, your work, your school, your job, your money, your future, your health, everything. And that's the truth, friends, whether you believe it or not. Just as the grass is green, whether you want to believe it's green or not, Jesus is Lord over your life, whether you believe it or not. So I've heard people say, and I think from the right heart, I decided to make Jesus Lord of my life, and I hate to break it to you, friends, but you didn't have a choice in the matter. Jesus is already Lord of your life. What do I mean by that? Philippians says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord of your life whether or not you submit to him. So the question is not whether Jesus is Lord. The question is, will you submit to him as Lord now? That's the question. You don't do anything to make him Lord. Will you submit to him? There will come a day, friends, where you will not be given that choice. 
That's what Philippians is saying here. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We covered that a number of weeks ago. There will come a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, not necessarily out of their own will, but they will recognize that He is Lord. So this news, this gospel is of such importance, it needs to be dealt with today. It can't be put off. It is literally the most important decision that you will make. It's not like your taxes that you can get an extension for. By the way, it's coming up in a week and a half. There's no extensions, friend. This news is of such importance. It needs to be dealt with today. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has life-altering effects for us. But not just for us. It had life-altering effects to the disciples. You know, something happens to Peter. You read in John's Gospel, and you read this interaction between Jesus and Peter, something happens that's just marvelous. You know, days earlier, he's denying Jesus in fear. And, and, and then within a short time, he's out preaching with boldness and explaining Jesus' death to the very people that killed him. From dashed hopes to death-defying faith, the gospel changes people. Friends, if you're not a Christian this morning, our plea to you is that you would repent of your sins and turn and trust in Christ. The gospel is for you. You know, right now, God's law requires that you die for your sin. Death is the penalty for sin. Death is an agonizing judgment, a curse from God, an enemy that separates those who die in sin from God forever. And that's the bad news. But the good news is that Jesus lived a perfectly obedient life to God that you couldn't. That he somehow became your righteousness, my righteousness. And that Jesus died and suffered God's wrath and judgment in our place on the cross. And that he takes away our sin and guilt. And then three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead to prove that he accepted Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. And that's what Easter is all about, friends. And now God calls us, everyone, to repent of their sins and to trust in him as Savior. See, this is why we exist as a church. This is why we continue to preach the gospel. Because all who trust in Jesus, even if they die, they will live again in the power of the resurrection. Friends, if you die... God will raise you again. The story is true. It's a fabulous story. And so I encourage you, church, as we've come and we've sat under the word to learn that we would go and tell the story with boldness that come into our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of his resurrection, we're neither afraid to die or to live in this world. We are hope-filled children of an almighty God. 
We are no longer enslaved to our sins, but we're wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, we are less pitied than anybody and more grateful than everybody. We thank you that today we can remember that everything sad will come untrue and that all things that are broken will be made new. And we acknowledge this morning that because of your resurrection, Jesus, you are already reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. We pray for those in this room and in our lives that do not recognize you as Lord. And may you use this time in your word to give them this blessed hope that we live in every day of every year. May you use your word, your truth, for your honor and glory in their life. And may we go from this place to preach your gospel to those that we come in contact with. And so we pray this, Jesus, in your resurrected and reigning name. Amen.